Welcome to the Neurodiverse Toolbox with Sheila Kieschlin and Paige Kieschlin. Good afternoon, Paige. Good afternoon. How are you doing today? Fine. Um, so today, Paige and I are really lucky. We have uh, ND coach, work coach with us, uh, Jessica Michaels. And um, Jessica, how are you doing today? Friday. Great. <laughs> it is indeed Friday. Um, and towards the end of the day here, so we're almost done working, right? Um, can you give us like a two-minute bio on you? Sure. Uh, I'm a late-diagnosed autistic uh, ADHDer. Uh, I was diagnosed in my very late 30s, and I work in talent development, so that's like developing and giving training uh, in a corporate setting. And what I realized after I was diagnosed is how much of what we teach in corporate training, how we teach managers to manage and how we teach employees, you know, to, to be professional doesn't work with neurodivergent brains at all. Uh, and how much of what I was telling people to do was harmful. Uh, so that really got me on a crusade to try to find, okay, how do you do this stuff for neurodivergent people? there wasn't anything out there. It's like people think we disappear when you turn 18. You're just not neurodivergent anymore. Uh, and so that really, it's when I got into creating resources and, and working to help kind of bridge that gap for people so that more neurodivergent people can find successful employment, have success in their careers. And overall, we just you know, make, make things better for, for everybody. So I coach uh, primarily leaders, neurodivergent leaders, so managers uh, through executives, and then I'm developing some courses and writing a book and, you know, doing what we can to change the world so that, you know, it gives, gives everybody a fair shake. Awesome. We're so lucky to have you as an advocate. So um, let's start at the beginning. What kind of um, work do you do when you're helping clients who are looking for a job. Mm -hmm. Yep. One of the things that is hardest. For oh, wait, no, wait, we have to back up. Sorry. This is all saying in the podcast too. Paige, we have questions that we ask all of our guests. Yeah. Okay. First question. <laughs> what is something you can't go a day without doing? Thing I cannot go a day without doing, and this is going to sound so ridiculous, is like giving a hug and a kiss to my wife and saying good morning, I love you, uh, because we're just we're just gross like that. That's awesome. <laughs> um, what habit have you found that helps your brain the most? Can I cheat and do two things? Of sure. course. Okay. One is if you see my kitchen, there are no doors on anything and there's just we have just nails and hooks in the wall so all of our utensils like cooking utensils are hung up on the wall and all of our like bowls and plates and just everything is in pantry you can see everything from the middle of the kitchen because I spent so much time opening and closing cabinets and then I would leave them open all the time that my wife just went 
just and took them all off. And it has been really helpful. Uh, and just being able to see everything is, is wonderful. So that's one that I highly recommend. The other is something actually that um, that somebody on this call taught me, which is that you got to let go of the word should. Like, sh- what do you mean you should do things this way? If you're getting things done and you're being successful, then who cares how you're doing it or when you're doing it? Just, you know, do what works for you. And that has been life changing. Absolutely. Should is such a toxic word. Um, <clears throat> what um, I should say, like, I've never thought about taking all the doors off the cabinets in the kitchen. We do have them off all our closets. But the kitchen, that's that's genius. I like that. Mm-hmm. You just have to dust more. Like that's because you get you you'll see you will get oh. dust. But it's just like a quick wipe just in the front. You know, I just it takes about three seconds. So yeah. I okay. And then the last question: What are you excited about today? I am excited that my wife is feeling better because she's been sick for a long time and this weekend we're going to go to the farmer's market and it's just nice seeing somebody who felt bad for so long like feel good and be excited about things so I'm excited with her that's wonderful I'm glad she's feeling better awesome so yeah let's jump back now all right finding a job yes yeah so one of the things that you know, in, in my practice, you know, some people are, you know, they very specifically ADHD coaches or dyslexia coaches or autism coaches. I've always just been a neurodiversity coach because I've learned that people, especially when they're looking for jobs and they're going through their career, we all can have the same challenges regardless of what that neurodivergence is. It's just, we look at the world slightly differently. And when people are applying, you know, or trying to find jobs, the very first thing that trips people up immediately is is job descriptions. When they are looking at job descriptions, neurodivergent people tend to be very critical and not apply for a job. If there are 10 things listed, if they can't do all 10 or they don't feel confident in all 10, they won't apply. Well, in reality, if somebody comes in applying for a job and they are skilled at all 10 things in a job description, most recruiters are going to say they're overqualified and move on to the next candidate. So it's just accepted in the corporate world. Nobody's going to have everything that is in these job descriptions. And and because a lot of the things that are in the job descriptions are, are aspirational, you know, they'll say, oh, it would be great if you had 10 years of this software and two years of this thing that's only been out for six months and all of these things that aren't really key to doing the job. And so people miss out on a lot of opportunities because they don't see themselves as fitting um, when really they would fit. So that's kind of the the first thing that happens. Um, And then the interview process is its own its own challenge uh, because it really is dependent on a set of social rules that don't actually have anything to do with working or doing the job. It's just, do you know how to act in this weird situation that never applies ever again 
but that's what de- you know determines whether or not you get the job. So we do a lot of prepping for interviews and and then um, and working through job searching, making sure people are applying for jobs consistently. They're not applying for the same job over and over again. And you know when they get that interview, they know what to say when a recruiter calls or or when they get uh, set up for uh, for the face to face interview. So are you like role playing with them for those interview questions? Yeah, we usually start by planning out answers and explaining the theory behind the questions. I found that really helps because people don't, once you know why they're asking the question, it becomes easier to understand what they want. So for example, a question that's very common on an interview is what's your greatest weakness? And so, you know, I might say, you know, well, my greatest weakness is getting out of bed on time. I really like to sleep in. My alarm goes off four times, you know, but that isn't what we want to say on an interview. What they're looking for are tell me about something that has been a challenge for you in a work environment, what happened and how you have fixed that thing or made it so that that thing is no longer a problem for you. So that's three answers they're expecting in one question. And how are you going to know that unless someone tells you? So yeah, we do we do a lot of uh, exploring the questions. And then yes, then generally we will do a couple of practice interviews to just get used to that flow in that type of environment. That's funny. I um. I used to be a manager at a store and I hired somebody because to that question, what is your greatest weakness? They wrote chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, awesome. They have a sense of humor. I'm hiring them. That is fantastic. I really, I really appreciate that. I really appreciate that. I thought that was the greatest answer ever. (laughs) Maybe not what you want to do if you're going into like, you know, get an executive management position, but it's great. I don't know. Depending upon, you know, one of the things that I know that uh, neurodivergent folks sometimes are challenged with is this idea that they sound robotic, you know, that they don't have a sense of humor. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I actually don't mind throwing a little, a little bit of appropriate humor in to show you know, that we, we do have some, some personality because we're not, not robots, uh, but sometimes we have to do a little bit extra to make people know that. Absolutely. Um, so <clears throat> once you've gotten the job, can you talk a little bit about whether or not you should disclose, disclose your neurodivergency, how you might do that, what it might look like if you're executive versus middle management versus, you know, low Mm -hmm. man on the totem pole. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, some people actually disclose before the interview or during the interview process, and they'll ask for accommodations, like getting the questions in advance, or um, setting a specific physical environment, or instead of maybe even doing a question and answer, submitting a work sample or, or something like that. Now, I have to say, not as many employers are as equipped as they should be to handle that situation. I mean, by law, they should say, of course, and, you know, it should be hunky-dory. That's not the reality that we live in 
right now. So for people who are able to take advantage of that situation, I think that's great. Most people that are neurodivergent are going to come in through a traditional path. Uh, And so I, it's, it's tough. I, you should not disclose if you are reasonably sure it will create a worse situation for you as opposed to a better one. Uh, Because again, and it's easy for people it's easy for neurotypical people to say, oh, but you're protected by the ADA, which <laughs> in most cases, technically, you are. But most of us don't have the resources to sue an employer, you know, if and there are so many ways for people to say, oh, we didn't discriminate against you because you're neurodivergent. It was this in your performance. And so it is not as easy as people say or think to to, to kind of take advantage of that, that protection, though it does, it does legally exist. So if you are going to be denied projects, if you are going to be taken off of assignments or not given enough hours or, um, or, or let go or whatever it is, then you shouldn't disclose because you probably need to, to keep that, that job. And it's unfortunate that that is my advice, but, that, but that's what it is. If you are in a situation where you feel like you can disclose safely, then I'm all for it. You know, one of the things that happens with neurodivergent people is that we get into a job, right? Adrenaline's flowing and you're, you're excited. And that for a lot of us makes it easier for us to mask, right? We pretend like we fit in, you know, we act like these other people and are habits aren't really set in yet. So most of us are able to keep that up for a couple of weeks, maybe even a couple of months. Some of us maybe even a year, but really by that point, what happens is all of your, all of those stresses that happen during the day that because you're interacting with neurotypical people and you're trying to do something other than do what you would naturally do, that really begins to wear on you. And you just physically and emotionally lose the ability to do that at some point. And that tends to make things really toxic. And the only way to prevent some of that is to rewind, you know, and talk to your manager and your coworkers about how you best work, right? What communication style works best for you physically? You know, what, what schedule works best? What, what do you, you need? And you can do those things without telling people why specifically, but you do need to have those conversations or eventually that job is, is just, there's going to be an end point. There's going to be an end point at some point. I think if you are a manager and a leader, you no longer have a choice. You have to disclose at some point. Not necessarily to management, you know, or to HR, though that can often be a good idea. You have to disclose to your team. And the reason is because we have a very specific idea in a professional capacity of what a good manager does, how they show that they care about their employees, how they communicate, how they do a lot of these things. And neurodivergent people often do those things differently, not worse, 
but differently. And so, but if employees don't know that, they have a tendency to think, oh, wait, if my manager, she should be able to tell that I'm unhappy because I have this facial expression. And I am, when I said yes to that question, I was sarcastic when I said it, you know, and the manager's over there thinking everything is hunky dory. And it isn't because the employee doesn't understand that the manager is not going to know unless they have those very overt discussions. Um, and so I think it, it really is critical to talk to your team, again, even if you don't let them know why um, specifically, but let them know, hey, this is, these are things, there's some things I naturally do well. There's some things that I don't. And those things affect you. And I really want you to feel comfortable and safe to tell me certain things or to answer certain questions because otherwise I am not going to be able to create the best environment for you. And I really want to do that. Uh, if we were a little bit more open to how we accepted communication in the workplace, we wouldn't be in that boat necessarily, but, but that's where we are. Executives almost can wear it as a badge of honor because that is sort of like a, a sign of, hey, I think differently. And that, especially in fields like tech, that's really a positive. That's really an advantage. Yeah. Um, but you would need to feel pretty safe in your in your space before you could kind of trumpet that. I'm probably pretty rare in that I'm very open and vocal uh, about being neurodivergent at work. I don't think that's the norm for everybody. Um, so, but I think there's there's times to disclose and, and not, and then there's ways to do it. But in general, uh, you you can sort of get away with it. Maybe if you're uh, an individual contributor, but once you get up into leading people, you, they just have such an expected level of communication that you really have to, you really have to disclose if you plan on want, one, if you want to be successful. Okay. So <clears throat> that makes me wonder what happens to relationships at work when you choose not to disclose? It is, it is tough, especially, you know, when you are somebody who is not diagnosed, things tend to happen like, oh, the people that used to invite me to lunch now go to lunch without me. I wonder what I did there. You know, you sort of have this idea, like you know your life, you know that things are gonna happen, but you sort of have to investigate them. Like, okay, this this person that used to talk to me does not talk to me anymore. I wonder what happened there. And so it's just always this pattern of like being like a CSI, trying to figure out where things went so wrong. When you are, diagnosed or identified, <clears throat> you at least have a reason for that. You know, you could say, okay, you know, what, <laughs> what did the, the neurodivergence fairy give me to work with in this situation? And sometimes you can tell, like, I was really shot in this, this meeting. And I know that I was not speaking as professionally as I should have, or I was very direct, or you know, just it was a time when my tone of voice and my face did not match what I was thinking and feeling. And you get the opportunity sometimes to come in and, and correct those things and, and talk to the person. But sometimes, you know, it's just you are who you are. And 
when you are neurodivergent and you don't disclose and you give nobody any reason to think differently, they're going to put you in the same box they put everybody else. And they're going to evaluate you and their interactions with you just like they would everybody else. And that's when you get, oh, this person is mean, they're rude, they're condescending, or, you know, all of these things that most of us aren't. But that is how people read us based upon their previous experiences. So it, it can be tough. And it's hard to sustain very few of my clients who did either didn't know they were neurodivergent or, you know, once they, once they found out, but chose not to disclose very few of them last more than a year in a position and more than five years at a company, because you've just burnt all your bridges by that. Point and it's, it's time to time to move on. Yeah. So I work with a couple of clients. I'm sure you have some that are the same that are very young, just starting their careers and are pretty adamant about like, I don't need anything special. <laughs> I, there's, I can handle anything. I made it through college. Um, what advice do you give them? Would you give them? Yeah, you can make it through anything when you're 20 because... <laughs> You just, you have more points left. You know, if you think of all your energy as just this level of points that you have, maybe in a day. And so let's say you wake up, you have a hundred points left to manage your day. Awesome. And if you are young, then a lot of the things that cause you to have fewer points available don't apply to you. Most people when they're 20 don't necessarily have a lot of chronic illness. They don't necessarily have a mortgage or children to, uh, to try to support. Um, you know, the level of responsibility and uh, how they are physically gives them some advantages that older people don't necessarily have. So they can use those reserves to fit it, right? To really study how people interact and keep that smile on their face and do all the things they need to do to fit in. However, at some point, your ability to do that diminishes. And then you'll find that you're able to do that for shorter and shorter and shorter periods of time. Or you're like, you want to have kids. You want to do things that require a lot of your, your points, which means you don't have those available to, to use at work anymore. And sometimes it's a, it's a conscious choice. So yeah, it is easier to do when you're young. It's still not easy. I mean, most of us don't quite pass as well as we think we do. <laughs> But, you know, because it's going to come up, you're going to get an evaluation where they say, oh, you have a strong personality, which is corporate speak for, you know, you're kind of a jerk. You know? <laughs> and and it, so it'll it'll creep out, you know, you, because this is how your, your brain and your body are. And the, the pattern, the consistency that you need in a workday is very different than college when you have a summer break and, you know, you may have classes at certain times, you know, it's, it's the, the relentless kind of grind that makes it really hard. That special moment that you have where you have, can have that adrenaline to keep you going. You don't really get those anymore. So yeah. Mm -hmm. 
What about people who are older, who are just now like, oh crap, I think I am neurodivergent. I should go through that process. Should they disclose as they're going through the process? Should they wait and see if they do have a neurodivergency? What what do you think? Mm -hmm. I think that if there are problems at work, if there's issues at work that are part of the reason why you are seeking out a diagnosis, then you should work on those at work with your manager and try to find solutions because whether or not you get the diagnosis, you're having the problems. Your brain is your brain. You are who you are. And so if those challenges exist, then you need to work on them regardless. So I wouldn't necessarily, you know, depending upon the relationship, I wouldn't necessarily say, oh, I'm trying to find out I'm ADHD. You know, I might say though, hey, it really is much easier for me when I get clear written instructions with deadlines as opposed to just talking about them briefly in a meeting and then, you know, that being the only time we ever talk about it. So um, I think advocate for yourself and, and for your needs, not just because you think you may be or you find out that you are neurodivergent. For sure. I totally agree. I mean, that's what I talk to my clients about, like, know what your processing modalities are and ask for accommodations using those processing modalities. Mm-hmm. So if you need stuff written, ask for it written. If you have ADHD, ask for a hard deadline, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The thing that I mm-hmm. run into, I'd be interested to find out if this is something that you run into with your clients. And this tends to happen, I would say, with younger individuals. But they are very firm in their idea that I am not at work to make friends. I am at work to do a job. And I will do that job. And anything else that I'm asked or required to do is stupid. And so I will not do it. And they're very, and and while, you know, a lot of me agrees, autistic Jess is like, absolutely. The reality of how long you can do that and stay employed and, you know, is, is very different. Have you, have you experienced that with any of your clients? Yeah. It's a sort of a like, well, let's play that movie to the end. How does that movie yeah. work out, right? How long do you think you're going to stick around if you're not willing to be a team player and pick up some of the extra crap mm-hmm. people are doing? Because if you're never the person picking up the crap, what do you think is going to happen, right? For sure. Yeah. I had, you know, when I was the the first, I think, you know, because I had, when, before I was diagnosed and I was kind of first in the working world, the pattern was I would be a really good individual contributor, right? I figure out whatever the job was and I'd be great at it, but I would lose kind of steam because I didn't really get along with people, even though I didn't know why. And one of my managers told me, she's like, you know, you really got to say hi to people when you walk in, you know, you you can't just sit at your desk and and start working. It's like, well, okay. Like that's pretty dumb, but sure. (laughs) And it was those kinds of things that like, you know, and somebody said, um, Hey, when you look down in a meeting all the time as you're talking, people think you're angry. Like, but I'm not. And they said, but it looks like you are. Okay. So gotta not only not do that, but then go fix it with the person who thinks I'm mad at them, you know? And so it was those kind of little things that technically didn't have anything to do with my job, but did ultimately impact my success uh, that, 
you know, that, that mattered. And so I think, yeah, it's, it, it would be tough to get really anywhere just on your own and, and thinking that just only what is uh, on your job description is, is what you should do. Right. I mean, there are all, all those extra intangible pieces of a job, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. That, that need to be attended to that certainly aren't taught anywhere. Right. So you got to pick those up somewhere. Um, so I want to give you a chance. I know you're writing a book and you're working on some courses. So tell us, tell us about that. Those. Yeah. So the book I'm writing started off as of what I had, had talked about earlier, which is how do you write trainings for neurodivergent individuals? But as I got going, what I found out what I really wanted to talk about is, hey, anybody who needs to transfer information, like if you are in a situation where you need somebody to act or think differently based upon information you're giving, that's really a learning experience, whether that's one-on-one or whether that's a team meeting or a huge training in a hall with a thousand people or you know an office, whatever it is. So it really became about if you are a manager or a lead or, or anybody who has to give information, here are the things to know and think about when it comes to the people who could be receiving that information. Here's how to make things more inclusive. You know, if you make things more inclusive for everybody, then it doesn't matter who's neurodivergent or not. You've made things better for everybody, but it does require thinking differently. You know, in in corporate America, uh, when we write a training, for example, our program success was usually determined based on how many people attended that training. Well, for a lot of people, participating in a giant webinar is not an effective way to learn. So they would have to go to the webinar to prove that they'd been there, but then still go to find to learn the information a different way because they didn't learn anything. So getting this idea out of our heads that just because we've put the information out there that everybody's going to grab onto it and do what you know we expect them to do with it is kind of an old, old attitude that we need to, to shake people out of from managers, you know, to, to trainers, whoever it is, we've got to make things more accessible for everybody, regardless of, of neurodivergence. So that's the book called One Size Fits No One. And it has one size all solutions, which is what companies tend to like, are useless. <laughs> They're just right. useless. Uh, and then I'm writing a course for an online learning platform called Udemy, uh, U-D-E-M-Y, mm-hmm. and it is specifically for managers who manage neurodivergent individuals. So if you do have somebody who is neurodivergent, how do you manage that process? Or if you, uh, if your company wants to consciously bring in neurodivergent individuals, you know, how do you do that and then support them when they're there? And then the last thing I'm working on is an online course that is about, because we know as professionals, we know that there's, you know, about a third of the world is neurodivergent, but only half those people know it. So if you're teaching a bunch of people about neurodiversity, that's amazing, but it doesn't really help those people kind of in the middle who don't know they're neurodivergent, but they are, they still have the same needs. They just don't know it. It can't articulate it. So the, this course is about, as a manager, how do you communicate with your team in a way that 
separates you from a lot of those assumptions that you had previously and allows you to communicate with a variety of different people so that you'll catch, you know, it doesn't matter if they're autistic or ADHD or, you know, not either one of those things, but just, you know, thinks a little bit differently anyway, you can still communicate with all of those people successfully. Uh, so that is, uh, those will both be the targeted for the end of the year, targeted for the end of the year. Awesome. And the book, what's the target for the book? Fall. Um, so we're in kind of the last, last bits of getting it together now, uh, and then it will go for, for publishing. So yes, this, this fall. And then how is that book available? Yes. So you can right now, if you want to get on the email list to find out when it, uh, when it drops, you can go to coachjessicamichaels.com and sign up for the book email list, and it will be available on Amazon and on my website. So it'll be an ebook and, uh, and a paperback first, and then the audiobook will be on the Audible platform, and that'll be available this winter. Awesome. Congratulations. I know you've been working on the book for a while, so that's great. Almost there. Yes. <laughs> yes. Very close. <laughs> Almost there. So anything else about work and neurodiversity that you think is like absolutely necessary that people know? That if we were more flexible at work, we wouldn't have to worry about who's neurodivergent and who's not because everybody's needs would just be taken care of. There's so many rules that we have that don't really matter. Like really, why does it matter if people start at eight o'clock? If that has, doesn't have anything to do with the actual work that's being produced, then it's a rule just to have a rule. Whereas if you gave people some flexibility, the things that that would open up for people are massive. You know, if you let people step away from their computers and have a 30 minute nap, in the afternoon, you know, I mean, you could get hours and hours of production from that person just because they've had the ability to, to reset a little bit. So uh, flexibility at really any point is is good. And so talk to colleagues and talk to your boss and talk to your teams about where you can find flexibility in in your work and then, you know, leave leave the HR people to deal with the, the accommodations that really have to be made and are, are one off. But just, yeah, if we make things flexible, then the world just gets better for everybody. Awesome. Um, so one other thought I have is when people do have like HR 504 manager meetings, right, to like actually set up their accommodations, mm -hmm. um, do you play a part in that? Do you talk to your clients beforehand? Do you go to those meetings? What do you, what do, you do? Yeah. Um, so depending upon the situation, I may do any of those things. So sometimes I will meet with the employee and the manager and just kind of broker like what accommodations may look like or explain in layman's terms, kind of why this employee might need some of those things that to the manager doesn't really seem to, to resonate. Um, and so if I'm doing a, a job coaching, then I'll, I'll, I might do that a lot, you know, look, break down the job description, figure out where, you know, the accommodations might make sense. Definitely, obviously, you know, there's usually a, a medical provider involved. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes that it's just a little bit hard to take 
what a provider says, and then figure out how to apply that to a corporate environment. So that's often where I come in. Um, but I will coach employees beforehand, you know, practicing how we have that conversation and, uh, and then also really how to advocate for their needs and even what to ask for. I think a lot of neurodivergent mm -hmm. people, it's not like a ramp, you know, is going to be the obvious solution or, you know, something in the physical environment. Sometimes things in the physical environment are accommodations, but a lot of time it's about how I communicate with my manager, how I communicate with my colleagues, how, pro you know, just these very subtle things that aren't as easily identified. Um, and, and sometimes people are newly diagnosed. They don't know what's going to help them. They don't know that sitting by the window as opposed to the aisle in an open office environment will reduce the amount of noise that they're exposed to to allow them to to work a little bit better so sometimes it's just suggesting things to see if they might help because i've got more experience dealing with it than than they do right right i do very much the same thing um at schools and um in the workplace but um Often mine's just like a conversation with the medical provider and then translating into like, what does that actually look like? So you say they need this and I'm telling you that looks like all the dirt, like their job needs to be written down for them <laughs> or yeah. they need yeah. a hard deadline or they need, you know, they need everybody at work to use, you know, it's a little ridiculous Slack platform or whatever it is. Right. Uh like somebody could be at work doing their job and maybe they need accommodations to do it better or to be more comfortable, but they don't suddenly lose the ability to do all the things that they could do yesterday. So sometimes when we're doing accommodations and the HR people will be like, well, what, what needs to change? What do we need to do differently? It's like, I actually don't want all that much to change. You know, I want a little bit more attention paid to this thing, but I'm still as capable as I was yesterday. And that that is something that is uh, some ableism that I'm sure they don't mean it to come across that way. But yeah, it is this, this, there is a perception sometimes that, oh, you're telling me this person can't do a single thing. It's like, no, that is no. really, really not the case. Um, yeah, often I find it's like, they need to have written down the exact deliverable that you want, right? Or they need, um, they need a hard deadline. That's the biggest one. Like, get it to me sometime at the end of the week is a stupid deadline. Mm -hmm. um, and it really needs to be like, could you have that to me by noon on Friday? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's, that's helpful. What's funny is a lot of these things are just the basics of being a good manager. Like if you right. read a book on being a good manager, it says give clear communication and deadlines and, and be specific in, in what you want. I mean, an employee should know exactly what they need to do to get paid. I don't know why mm. that is a <laughs> such a hard thing or like, how do you know if your employee is doing a good job? Okay, tell them that. And, you know, like. And so it's, it's a lot of it is just details that people don't pay attention to. They don't think it's important, but it is important to a lot of, a lot of people. And they, you know, it's a little bit silly because people are like, how could that be an accommodation? Aren't managers supposed to be doing that anyway? It's like, well, yeah, <laughs> but, but they're not. So yeah, it's I um, think just it's, uh, also sometimes that managers want to seem like they're just one of the guys 
-hmm. And they're not, right? Like, I don't, just like I don't need my mother to be my friend. I don't need my manager to be my friend necessarily. Civil Mm -hmm. and polite and get along and like, that's fine. But like, you don't need to be my drinking buddy, right? You just, you need to be my manager. Like, or my mentor. Sometimes, you know, especially because we train managers as coaches a lot of times. That's very big in in corporations. And so as a coach, Mm -hmm. You're asking a lot of questions. You're asking a lot of questions. And so we train managers to manage using questions. But for a lot of neurodivergent people, that is not an approach that works for them. And you get so frustrated. It's just like, what are we driving at? Just tell me what to do. Like, I don't care. (laughs) Give me a direction. And so many managers are averse to that because they want to be inclusive. They want to be friendly. They want to get you to, to say the thing. And so sometimes we just need declarative statements mm-hmm. about what to do. And that's not bad. Sometimes that's managing and we need you to do that. So yeah, it's, we've sort of put ourselves in a, in a weird position based upon how we've trained managers to manage. Right. I mean, there are those books, um, the advice trap and the, the coach, uh, he has a sequel to that book. I can't remember it. I'll put it in the notes. They're good. They're great books, right? Mm-hmm. And for your ADHD employees, those strategies will probably work. But for your strata, for your uh, employees that are on the spectrum, that uh, those strategies will not work. Do not use those with them, right? Or if you notice they're not working, hey, maybe that particular employee do not disclose and you should stop using that strategy yeah or they have no idea that they're neurodivergent but right you know that i mean most people don't go to work you know being a jerk on purpose most people don't go to work wanting to be a screw up like you know most people want to do a good job and they want to get along and you know so if somebody isn't doing that rather than just assuming that person is bad or incompetent, or not a good culture fit, you know, try a couple of different things, you know, because they might not know exactly what they need, you might hit on exactly the thing. And it could be putting in written directions or telling somebody instead of asking a ton of questions. And that's a lot easier than firing somebody, uh, which is actually really hard to do when you're a manager. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you might not get a backfill, it's all all very fraught. So try a couple of different things to see what works. I think that's the least we can yeah. we can do for people. Employee retention is always better than going mm-hmm. through an interview process again anyway, right? Save yourself the headache for sure. Awesome. Paige, you're very quiet. Do you have thoughts? She's shaking her head. She won't even unmute. Do you have thoughts, Paige? No, she's not unmuting. All right. Good enough. Jessica, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to your book coming out so much. Um and um, yeah, any, I, I feel complete. So are you? It sounds like the end of a coaching training. It's, it does. That is the end of a, of a CTI and I am complete. Um, yeah, I am complete, uh, but people want to find me. If they are not complete, they can go to my website, coachjessicamichaels.com to book um, a free consultation or, you know, I, I do speaking engagements and things. So I, I'm out there. Come find awesome. me. Absolutely. Especially if you're a tech company that's not doing this, please, please have her come talk to you guys. And I will also put a link to your website in the description of this podcast episode. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
Thank you for listening. If you wanted to coach with me, see my information at bigbangcoaching.net. If you are interested in emailing us, you can reach us at the ndtoolbox at gmail.com. And if you wanted to see our website, please go to the neurodiverse toolbox.podbean.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Neurodiverse Toolbox.